Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. They were in a farm in Saskatchewan. The crops failed. Their baby girl died when she was only a few days old. A few months later, their little three-year-old died from an infection. They couldn't afford a doctor. And it was a very bad year. And an evangelist came around to the nearby town, was having meetings, and they drove around, invited everybody in the farms to go out to the meetings. And my Annie wanted to go. This was all new to her. She grew up in, they, they had a Bible in their house, but she said it was for recording, recording births and deaths. And she didn't really know what was in it. It was all new stuff to her. Clarence, on the other hand, had grown up in a family in which his father was a hard-drinking womanizer. And he, as a result of that, had done something that resulted in deaths of people because of negligence on his job. And people died. It was a big deal in Toronto. It was a tram crash. And he, uh, they lost everything and had to move out to a small place and hang their heads low. And my grandfather, if Clarence was my grandfather, was really suffering because his mother wanted to make sure he did not turn out to be like his father. And so she tried literally to beat the hell out of him. And she was extremely strict, temperance league woman, very, very religious. And he wanted nothing more to do with it. So these evangelists came around. And they went anyway because there wasn't much else to do. And uh, Annie got saved. Annie got well, good, and duly saved, healed, and delivered. And she was so enthused. And they went to some more meetings, and he just was not happy. He was very, very angry about this. And he, uh, one night, they came back after one of the meetings. And he was in the barn putting the horse away and just had a small lamp. But things began to grow very, very bright in the barn, very light, very bright, very, very, very bright. And he turned around, and there was this being glowing, standing, and getting brighter and brighter. And he looked, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus. Why are you kicking against the pricks? Which was the King James version of, why are you fighting me? And my grandfather felt such love that he had never known before. And he fell on his knees and he was a changed man. After that day, and that is a history of my family. That's where things started. That's a starting point. Before there were there were things before that had happened in the history, but people forgot and they lost them. They lost the stories and they lost track of what had happened. So I want to read um, Psalm 78. It's a long one, I promise. I won't read the whole thing. It's very important because it's full of history. But it said Beloved ones, listen to this instruction. 
Open your heart to the revelation of this mystery that I share with you. A parable and a proverb are hidden in what I say, an intriguing riddle from the past. We've heard true stories from our fathers about our rich heritage. We will continue to tell our children and not hide from the rising generation the great marvels of our God, his miracles and power that have brought us all this far. The story of Israel is a lesson in God's ways. He established decrees for Jacob and established the law in Israel, and he commanded our forefathers to teach them to their children. For perpetuity, God's ways will be passed down from one generation to the next, even to those not yet born. In this way, every generation will have living faith in the laws of life and will never forget the faithful ways of God. Now, the rest of the chapter goes on to say how God intervened, the encounters they had with God, and how they forgot. And then they had, they cried out, and God came and intervened, and then they forgot. And he intervened, and then they forgot. And the history goes on here for, oh, what have we got? 72 verses. And I think it only goes up to David. And then they forgot. Um, you know, God communicates with us in a number of different ways. We have the scripture. The Bible is full of stories. And they're not stories that make, want us to make a hero. Be like Samson. Be like David. Be like... Because it includes all the parts, too, where they didn't do so well. Gideon, wonderful. But towards the end, eh, not so great. Hezekiah, he found, and then he didn't pay attention to what he had learned. He forgot. Not so great, okay? The stories are for us and for our children. Remember. And the Lord has been saying to me, uh, his word to me uh, since Easter was, is, has been remember, remember. And, and I go, okay, this is something I need to do. Um, I'm going to get Jamie pay a couple of clips. There's Jean-Luc. Captain, would you be prepared to consider the creation of a mutual non-aggression pact between our two peoples, possibly leading to a trade agreement and cultural interchange? Does this sound like a reasonable course of action to you? In winter. Impressions number one. It appears they're trying their best, as are we, for what it's worth. Shaka, when the walls fell. Darmok. Darmok. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Shaka. When the walls fell. Zina at Anzo. Zina and Bakar. Darmok at Tanagra. Shaka. Mirab, his sails unfurled. Darmok. Mirab. Tamok. The river. Tamok. 
Darmok and Vilad at Tanagra. I would prefer to find a peaceful solution. If we could talk our way out of this one, that much the better. Unfortunately, it may not be that simple. What did you find out? The Tamarian ego structure does not seem to allow what we normally think of as self-identity. Their ability to abstract is highly unusual. They seem to communicate through narrative imagery, a reference to the individuals and places which appear in their mytho-historical accounts. It's as if I were to say to you, Juliet on her balcony. An image of romance. Exactly. Imagery is everything to the Tamarians. It embodies their emotional states, their very thought processes. It's how they communicate, and it's how they think. If we know how they think, shouldn't we be able to get something across to them? No, sir. The situation is analogous to understanding the grammar of a language, but none of the vocabulary. If I didn't know who Juliet was, or what she was doing on that balcony, the image alone wouldn't have any meaning. That's correct. For instance, we know that Darmok was a great hero, a hunter, and that Tanagra was an island. But that's it. Without the details, there's no understanding. It is necessary for us to learn the narrative from which the Tamarians draw their imagery. Given our current relations, that does not appear likely. Okay. That happens to be one of my favorite Trekkie episodes. <sighs> um... I, I said to my son once, he said, how are you doing? And it was a time of a lot of spiritual confusion stuff for me. And I said, I'm going through a spiritual ponfar. And he said, <laughs> he said, Mom, only you and Dad understand what that means. <laughs> but, okay, well, there's a few other people, you know, understand. Okay, but these, these images, God uses these things, his stories with us. So if we said it's a Damascus Road experience... Those who, is, who are literate in the Bible know what that means, okay? And if he says it's a David and Goliath situation, well, some people outside of uh, being li- biblically literate have some idea of what that means, but a lot they don't. If you said Huldah and Josiah and the scroll, they go, <laughs> because they're not familiar with these passages, okay? But we also have our own imagery. If I said Terry Fox running, immediately that says to you something. It says something about the character of this young man. And you see a picture in your head of him on a highway, right? Uh, If I say Watergate or the Twin Towers falling, these are references to to our stories. And they, they mean something. If I said the Raptors winning, Okay, that's a new one. It's going to be there. It's going to be up there with the Russia-Canada hockey series. Okay, and we know, those of us who are old enough, know what that means. Okay, so when we have a history of God, we learn who he is. What happened, the rest of this story, I'm going to give you a spoiler. So when he says, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, the captain is beamed away, and the two of them go down to this planet. Okay, and on this planet is a monster, and it is most of the time invisible, 
but shows up only before it's going to attack. And he doesn't, because they don't, they can't communicate. I mean, the, the universal communicator is working, but the imagery doesn't work. Um, they, they have no way to talk about what's happening. He thinks he's, he's given a knife and he has to fight it out with his other captain. But no, it turns out that they have a mutual enemy. And when he finally figures this out, there's this, the whole rest of the show is about them fighting this mutual enemy. And the other captain actually sacrifices his life in order to establish a basis for communication. And in a way, Jesus came down, sacrificed his life in a way to establish communication to tell us this is what God is really like. Now, a lot of the times we talk about understanding the essential part of understanding our identity in Christ. But what comes before understanding our identity in Christ is understanding who God is, who he wants to be. That is the most important question we can ask in life is who is God? And then who am I? Who does he see me as? So... We have God who takes us on adventures and gives us solidifying experiences. We can read this, and we can read, you. this is love. You should be loving, right? God is love. Okay? That can mean all sorts of things to different people. God loves you. Well, okay, well, yeah, all right. Until it becomes solidified in an experience with him, it's like Dharma Congelata Tanagra. That's nice, but it's not my story. It's my grandparents' story. It's a story in here. It might be your story. It means nothing. Well, maybe something to me, but it's, it's theoretical. Okay. So one of the things that Lord has been showing me is that when he wants to show some aspect of his character to us, okay, it, it's not always the same. If the Lord wants to show himself as your healer, and he wants to show himself as dunamis power, he's going to show up with razzle-dazzle, sparkles, healings, wonderful, wonderful things. If the Lord is showing you that he's your rock and he's your peace, He's not going to show up in the same type of circumstance. The circumstances he arranges are different. Now, one of, one of my theme verses for my life has been um, Philippians 3.10. And it's that I might know him. That little phrase, I used it in my gravatar underneath on some things I belong to. I didn't like to look at the next part, which is, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be, you know, fully raised, the resurrection. Um, fully alive. And uh, that's when I realized, when I said yes to him, he said, I said, what do you want? He said, give me a yes. So I gave him a yes. And when he asked me, do you want to train as a warrior for the kingdom? Well, not really. Yeah, well, I'm inviting you anyway. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right, I'll do this. And I got into this warrior training this little bit, and I said, whoa, what was that? And he says, I train with live ammo. Keep your head down. <laughs> so, this, is, this is real. <laughs> These battle teams, I know, cool. <laughs> ah, ah. Anyway, 
I'll tell you some live ammo stories. Um, and, and one of the things he's also teaching me right now, he wants to teach me, he, he, you know, he showed me in a dream that one of the important words for me is the Hebrew word betach, which is confidence. It's confident security in who he is. And also kind of confidence that I'm taking the risk that I'm hearing him accurately. Because I'm oh, is this me? Is this you? Anyway, my father was a professional storyteller. Uh, he was a writer. He used to go around, tell stories. All I grew up with stories. You know, it was just our, our family. I thought everybody did this. Um, and one of the stories he told me was about my birth. And like I said, my dad was a storyteller. He was a fiction writer. So events that happened in the house, you know, in, in the family and stuff were basically facts were fodder for his imagination. And uh, so when he told a story, how accurate is this? You know, the essence was accurate, the, the details we don't know. So when he told me the story of my birth, uh, yeah, it's a long time ago. They didn't have the kind of scans we have now. Um, and it was my dad telling the story. So about nothing of it. But I was driving down the strip one day. And I had this thought come into my head completely unrelated to anything else I'm thinking about. And I hear, it's true, you know. What? What's true? What's true? Your dad's story. It's about your birth. It's true. And I said, really? And okay. Um, So I tell you the story going, I can't prove it. I can't prove it. But I feel like the Lord is saying it's true, you know. I was an overdue baby. I was a really, really lazy baby, almost a month. Mm, yeah, in those days, they didn't induce as easily. And it was in a small town. It happened to be in the very same small town that Judy was born in. Because <laughs> we talked about this. It was in Olds uh, in Alberta. And there was, a, they finally got a doctor there. And it was his first week out of medical school and his first week of practice. Um, There were also three experienced Irish midwives who'd been looking after things there for years. Uh, So my mother finally went into labor on Wednesday. And she was in labor until Friday. And there was no progress. And the midwives kept telling the doctor, the baby's lying sideways. It won't come out. But he was really reluctant to do a C-section because it's his first week of practice, right? Um, but anyway, her labor stopped. And, and they told my parents, there's, there's no life signs. We can't find a heartbeat. There's no movement. Um, we think the baby's dead. And so they scheduled a C-section on Saturday morning to deliver a stillborn. But that night the ladies at the Baptist church got together and they prayed all night without stopping. And dad says he was in the waiting room and an Irish nurse came bounding out, running down the hall, yelling at the top of her lungs. He said, you've got your melody and she's alive. (laughs) And not only was I alive, I was a robust baby, <laughs> a large, robust baby. Um, and I'm going, was I raised from the dead? My dad said, yeah, 
It were. And that's a story I've always been reluctant to make public because I go, oh, I don't, I don't prove it. But he said, you know, there were three, three midwives there. They were experienced. They knew when there was no life signs. So that was my first God encounter, um, which is really remarkable. Um, so I grew up in this family that, you know, just like families that grew up in the church. Uh, my grandparents were part of our family. We lived with them. If the church was open, we were there. Um, and I can remember, I'm calling this one uh, Melody and the Cuban Missiles. <laughs> uh, I was a Pioneer Girls. <laughs> Some of you know. It was a girls club, you know. And, and I remember that night they asked... Okay, who has prayed the sinner's prayer? Now, I believed in God. I believe in Jesus. I believed everything as I grew up. You know, I, 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 just, I just accepted Jesus and everything was fine. But they say, who has prayed the sinner's prayer? And, you know, girls put up their hands. And, and I said, oh. I don't know. You know next, they're going to ask who hasn't. You know, so, so I go, oh, okay, I did. And then I got home. And what had also happened that day was that we used to say the Lord's Prayer in school. And my teacher, who was definitely not a church lady, when we came to the end of the Lord's Prayer that morning, she stayed with her head bowed for the longest time and didn't move. And you knew if Miss Janey was happening, who was praying, this was a big deal. And then one of the girls got up for show and tell and started talking. Today, Russia is going to ask Cuba to bomb us. And at that time, we were getting, you know, what do you know when you're a kid? We were getting things in the mail, you know, that had the, the red circles on them that showed them what would happen to you depending on how close you were to the explosion. You know, kids shouldn't read this stuff, but we did. And um, they said Calgary would be a target because of all the oil industry and the pipelines. So, you know, and then my dad said, okay, if we get separated, we'll go back. We'll meet in Olds because nobody cares about Olds. <laughs> you know, no Russians there. Um, but I was scared. I was genuinely scared. Okay. So, and, and what was also happening in my church, we were having a series of meetings on the end times and the rapture. And this, do you want to be left behind? You know, God is going to come is any, any second now. Everybody's going to get zapped. And if you haven't said the sinner's prayer, by this time, you've missed the deadline. You're out. So I went home. And I prayed that night, and, I, and I, I said, okay, here's the sinner's prayer. I had plenty of tracts around the house, so I knew which ones to read, which ones to do. I just had never, you know, gotten around to, you know, like solidifying the thing, you know, putting a date on it. So I did. I said the sinner's prayer, and I also confessed. I said, I knew God was going to be mad at me because not only had I not said the sinner's prayer, but I put my hand up at my and girls that I had, so I lied too. So like I was really going to get it. So I figured I better make this right, and I confessed everything I could possibly think of to confess. Maybe made up a few things just in case. And um, anyway, I thought, good, I'm saved. And I can remember that night opening up my window, uh, and there was a moon, and I shouted to the sky, it's okay, you can come now. <laughs> a little bit self-centered. <laughs> but then after that, I did all the things a good church kid does. I went to clubs, 
I went, I got baptized when I was a teenager. I went to Sunday school. Um, I started a Bible club at my school. I taught Sunday school as I got older. I went to Bible school, you know, just for one year because girls don't go to all the way through Bible school because they can't preach anyway. <laughs> and, um, and then when I, I, I got married, I had kids. We went to church. I ran the library. I brought things to the potluck. I picked up students to drive them. Um, I, I, I did all the stuff. Okay? So this next part of the story, I'm going to call Melody on the stage, her voice gone. And I was, I, I, I played piano. I did music a lot for a lot of churches. And that we were in as we moved around. But I was standing on the stage doing a sound check. And the song I was singing was based on 1 Corinthians 13. Though I may sing with tongues of men, but have not love, you know, I am nothing. Um, And as I'm singing this, doing this sound check, my vocal cords went into a spasm. Just, uh, nothing was coming out. This is embarrassing. So I excused myself and said, I, I, need, I need a drink. I need to just excuse me. And I ran to the bathroom in the church and I'm in the stall and I start crying. And I said, I don't know what love is. I don't know. How can I stand up there and sing love? And I'm love and you're love and God is love. And I, have, I can't tell. What love is. Now, this has nothing to do with any one particular person. It has to do with ideas that I picked up over time. And Satan will interfere in a child's life. And the very first lie, he said, did God really say? And he will try to mess up your image of God. And we get ideas. I got my ideas of God from, from movies. You know, I got my ideas from, from comic books. I got my ideas from really bad Sunday school lessons, uh, from, from teachers who were, you know, eager, but they were more eager to control behavior than to tell you what God was like. Um, I got my ideas from things that had happened to me as a result of wounded people, wounding people. And my, a lot of my ideas of who God was were associated with authority figures. Anyway. That was the beginning of the great ungluing. A little while later, I went to another church service and I opened the bulletin and the title of the sermon was Seven Things Every Christian Must Do. And I stood in an aisle just taking my seat and I said, I can't do one more thing. I have worked as hard as I am able and God is still mad at me. And I am, will never be good enough. And I just get criticized. You should have done it this way. You should have done that. I was never good enough. And I walked out and I didn't go back to church for at least a couple of years. But I had a friend who invited me to come to her Bible study. And we were studying the book, Your God is Too Small. And I realized that my image of God was mixed up with a whole bunch of folk religion, past experiences, And when I came to faith, it was out of fear. That was my basic relationship with God, is I was afraid that if I didn't do everything right, he was going to get me. And I could say what I believed up here, and I had been to Bible school. 
I could tell you what grace was. I could give you the definitions and everything. But what was here, when I wrote it down, when I felt like it, I couldn't talk to God for quite a while, by the way. I could send him letters, mail them to the fireplace. I could talk to Jesus because I, I have an image of a brother. But it, uh, my relationship with God with Father was like, Jesus, would you please tell Father to hand me the salt? <laughs> it was like I wouldn't talk to him, you know, which is theologically absurd. <laughs> but, but I was just going through a lot of my feelings. And, and then one day I was out at the ski hill waiting for my kids, and there was a Bible in the car, one on the left. We still insisted they go to all the clubs and things. Um, and I opened it to Hosea and read through Hosea chapter two. It's just like, it might as well have been in neon lights. It was just, and he said, I, he talked about the woman who was a prostitute. And, and he said, I will block off all of her lovers. I will take her into the desert and I will allure her. And she will sing to me again as in the days of her youth. And I knew he was talking about me, and I said, prostitute, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> um, but I realized at that time, my singing career was starting to take off. And I had fans. I had a fan base. And I realized I was becoming addicted to applause. For an approval junkie, a standing ovation is a high. And I was making more and more sacrifices to get those standing ovations. And right about that time, I lost my voice. And, I, and I, I had started having endocrine problems, and I lost my looks. And you get out, don't get hired. You know, the, the, the jobs fell off. If you're not, your voice isn't reliable. And I realized that was my identity. And I said, if I'm not a singer, what am I? What, you know? And he said, well, first, we need to establish who I am. And I won't tell you how long this period took because it would be very discouraging. Sometimes we, don't go, we wouldn't go into things if we had any idea what we were getting into. But he showed me. He allured me. He showed me his love. He would send me people who would demonstrate fruit of the Spirit. Um, and he, would, he, he sent me a, a counselor who demonstrated what it was like to be patient. He'd sit there. He'd sit there for an hour listening to the air conditioning and, and say, you know, you want to talk? You talk? You don't want to talk? <laughs> you know, he showed me that if I didn't go to church, he still loved me. He showed me that if I didn't do all this stuff, none, I was the ultimate performance-based. Some people call it religion, religiosity. For me, it's performance-based. Christianity, I thought that God would only like me if I measured up. Um, and gradually, over time, he said, I love you if you do absolutely nothing for the rest of your life. You just want to sit here and be a blob. I love you. You know, and that was, but it was, a, I, I was testing him because I quit. I said, I am done. I am so done with this churchianity stuff. I'm just, I am done, you know. And gradually, uh, it, it, I, I went and saw uh, Ron Fubister, who was just so wonderful to me at the time. And I said, every time I go into church, I'm so angry. It's just really uncomfortable. And he said, you know, and he heard a bit of my history. And he said, you know, most people I say, you should be in church. He says, but to you, I say, church for you might be one or two people that you can trust. One or two people. And you can be honest and you can have integrity. See, so what a nervous breakdown. The, the, the gift of grace and having a nervous breakdown and ending up in the psych ward. If there's a gift of grace in there. A gift of grace is when 
what you think you think and what you actually think. That's shown by your behavior, your feelings don't match. They're out of alignment. It's crazy making. And the Lord was just showing me how to bring these back into alignment with who he really was. So he sent me people. He sent me books. He sent me songs. He sent me poetry. He sent me flowers. He sent me a crocus growing in the middle of the woods at the end of November when everything was frozen. And I said, because somebody had prophesied over me that you're going into a winter period. And I said, ah, I've been in winter. <laughs> and, he's, and, I, and he said me this. And the other thing, he's a prairie chicken. A prairie chicken. He hopped out of the woods and did a full mating dance. You know, the big plumage, the bomb, you know, everything. And, and it's out of season. It's, it was winter. Prairie chickens aren't even supposed to be here. And I got him and said, what's that about? And he says, you, with you and me, it's spring. Don't worry about this word about winter. With us, it's spring. And I, oh. Anyway, the ventures continued. And that's when I decided that, okay, teach me. Teach me. Because I don't have anybody else. And that's when I discovered he uses live ammo. And if you want to see miracles, you're going to find yourself in places where you need miracles. Because there is no other way. And we have been in situations. One is our, our son-in-law had a 0% chance of survival. And I watched God work through that and raise up the complacent Canadian church to pray for this one man. That his body would be restored. He was, well, there's a book. Um. We have, Hosea too also said, I will give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Achor means trouble. And I'm going, okay, this doesn't feel like abundant life to me. <laughs> the valley of Achor. And yeah, we ran into trouble. We have had troubles. We have had trials. But I have to say that God has got us through everything, all, all of them. And as I've learned to hear his voice, he gives me a heads up first. Sometimes he gives me, what are, what's this year about? Or what's this next season about? What are we learning? And at one point he says, okay, I want to show you that I'm your better eat. And this is cool because the words come in Hebrew, so I know I can't make them up because I'm afraid I make them up. I have to look it up. But it is covenantal promise. It's also the word for rainbow. It's the one-sided covenant. It's not like you do this and I'll do this. It's not an if-then. If you remember to follow, you know, then I will, do, I will bless you. It was like, no, this is my promise. Okay, you don't have to do anything. This is my promise, my covenant promise. So he was teaching me that year that he was my faithful promise keeper. This year has been about the words tzedakah, which is he is my righteousness. Shalom, he is my peace, everything in order, nothing missing. And my betach, my confident security. Um, sometimes... We found ourselves in circumstances. And I have to tell you, the, the circumstance I found myself in, it's two years ago now. I had just had a hysterectomy because my doctor was convinced I was very close to having, I was very high risk for getting cancer. And then my body decided to throw kidney stones three days after surgery. <laughs> Particularly bad timing. But they decided they needed to make sure that they hadn't had any damage done as a result of the, of the surgery. So I sent for more scans, 
And they came back and they said, no, you know, your ureters are fine. Uh, but did you know you have a mass in your abdomen? Um, you actually do have cancer. It's a different kind of cancer. I, I go, you have got to be kidding me. I'm afraid I don't have really holy reactions sometime. <laughs> um, my, my language may have taken a bent for the Anglo-Saxon <laughs> at that point. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't imagine that again. Um, <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But he said, just keep your head down. This is live ammo. You're in training. This is a real situation. But guess what? You're in trouble. Because <laughs> you're just training for something bigger. <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah, and I, and I found out, you know, last month, I went to the oncologist in, in Calgary, and he says, yeah, you're doing actually really well. For most people who have this, because they, they found out, <clears throat> actually, I've had it for 10 years. And it was missed uh, before that. And he said, for somebody who's had this type of cancer that long, and he says, there's no evidence spreading to your liver and your pancreas, which we'd expect. Uh, he said, you're doing really good. So we can never say you're healed from this, because it always comes back. No, that's your thing, not his. Um, um, but he said, enjoy your remission. And a year ago, I thought I was dying. You know, and I'm still here. You know, and he just said, I think sometimes humility and go low is to keep your head down because we're doing live ammo training here. So I, I just want to say that if you find yourself in situations where you're saying, what is going on here? One of the best questions to ask is not why. The best question to ask is, okay, who do you want to be for me now? What aspect of you could I not see in any other way? Um, and sometimes he says, I want to be your healer. And boom, you're healed. Sometimes I want to be your rock. And you've got something to hang on to. You know, and sometimes he says, I want to be, I want to be everything for you. And I, I want to show you what love is. And you can't do that in five minutes in a miracle at a conference. I want to show you consistently. I want to bring you a rose a day. I want to sing songs over you at night. I want to arrange circumstances so that you know I will never, ever, ever leave you. Now, the verse in Hosea, that one of the, the ones that stuck out to me, and says, you, she will sing to me again as in the days of her youth. That word is anna. Most translations say she will respond to me. You know? And sometimes God, when, most of the time when that word anna is used is in the Psalms. And God is calling to us. And he says, respond to me, my people. Anna, Anna, respond to me. And when we, it's all about relationship. Signs point to something. Don't camp at the, the sign that says, you know, Fern Glen Campground, 10 kilometers. You don't camp there. You go there. Signs and wonders are wonderful, but they point to someone. They point to relationship. And what he wants is our relationship. Anything that comes out of that is overflow 
to respond. We love because we are loved and not because we have to go out there with our little tract and bang on doors. You know, we love and we tell people about God because he's so good. And it flows out of us. And and you don't have to take a class and learn how to buttonhole people. His words for them will flow through you. So the theme in my life has been that I might know him. And when I say, he said to me, um, one year before the, 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 the really big year when our son-in-law almost died, our, my, my, my son's house was, their, their, their whole town was flooded. My, my, my brother was just about washed away. <laughs> it was, stuff happened that year. And he shows up at my, <laughs> in my dreams, you know, <laughs> and says, I said, what are we doing now? But frequently he shows up when we're going to do something. It's a dream about a trip. We're going to fly somewhere. One day, one time he showed up with a horse, two horses, one of them empty with the saddles. Come on, I'm going to show you something. You know? And I know something, okay, something's going to happen. And sometimes it's like, woohoo, really good. And sometimes it's like, you've got to be kidding me. But sometimes he, he shows up and he says, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, this is going to be good. And I have to learn to say, okay. This is going to be good. And I thank you for that. So there was, in this, one of these times, there was a, there was a song that somebody showed me by Sarah Groves. I wasn't familiar with this singer. And there was a verse that just stood out to me so much. And uh, I haven't sung in public for many years. But I can't remember a trial or a pain he did not recycle to bring me gain. I can't remember one single regret in serving God only and trusting his hand. All I have need of his hand does supply. He's always been faithful to me. Thanks for listening to our Sermon of the Week. Our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the Father and the power of His presence. For more information about House of Hope, visit us at www.ihope.today.